Well, good afternoon, everybody. Hey, uh, thanks so much to everybody who participated in the service. You guys are amazing. Thanks to everybody who um, is logged on right now. We can see your comments and we're absolutely thrilled. Uh, I was finally able to put a little graphic right down there for you. So you can post your comments and questions on YouTube, uh, text them to me. I've got the text messages open. Last week was an incredibly, wonderfully rich time because of all of you and your engagement and your questions and your reflections and some of the stuff that you brought. And so we thought we'd do that again because number one, we weren't able to get to necessarily everything that we wanted to get to, um, but also because so many of you asked so many good questions. So that's our encouragement for you. Uh, these live conversations on our sermon time are meant to be communal and engaging, so go for it. Pretend like we're all in the room together, which we actually even tried to figure out how to do, um, <laughs> all of the three of us too, and so in anticipation of the fact that soon and very soon, God willing, we will all be in a space together, um, pretend today, use your prophetic imagination, and okay. pretend that that is what's happening <laughs> right now as you open up your Bible to Luke 11 and 12, and we kind of con converse together and hang out. So where we left off last week, um, after we discussed, well, first of all, we began discussing a little bit of the Mary uh, Martha story. Um, and then we talked about demons and Beelzebub and all sorts of things. And I hope that some of what we shared was uh, helpful for you all to kind of frame how you think about these passages that have been obviously taught on for um, many of our lives for a long period of time and getting us once again back into the historical uh, cultural context. And today I think we're going to start in chapter 11, verses 20. Uh, starting in verse 29, which is after the Beelzebub passage with a, at least my Bible has this heading called the sign of Jonah. And um, I'm going to... I think Jesus used those headings when he preached, by the way. Like he was preaching <laughs> and talking and then he would just yeah. stop and he'd go, the sign of Jonah. The sign yeah. of Jonah. And yeah. then he would he pause and keep going. Right. Exactly. In, in English. In English, yeah. with a set of very specific translators. Can you imagine if if, if Jesus had keynote when when he was around or PowerPoint? Click word Click. art. Yeah. It was word art back then. Yeah, I just I, sorry. Helen is just so wonderful. Hi all. I love these live sessions. It makes me feel closer uh, we to love everyone. You, Helen makes thank, us feel closer too. Thank you, Helen. And Anne agrees. So. Yay! Helen and Anne say this. It's must be true. It's, true. it's very true. Okay, so um, Omar, I'm going to pass it off to you. Let's start with the question that might lead us into the conversation discussion. And again, everybody, what the heck is the sign hmm. of Jonah? What uh -huh. is that? But yeah. let's get started there and see what we can tease out here. So we're, what yeah. verse are we in? Verse 29 of chapter 11. Yes, that's right. And then as a, as a quick reminder, so the reason why the narrative has gone to the sign is, so remember last week when we talked about the, the um, so Jesus performed a miracle, he, he healed someone, and then the, the um, some people in the audience objected by saying, um, you're doing this empowered by demons or Satan, or Beelzebul. And then other people demanded a sign yeah. so this is a discussion around demanding the sign and right so there's this question well what what is this sign and uh other than and, the one that's already been performed correct right, right. well that's the right. thing exactly right. that Just, whatever whatever it is that they're asking for i did a is, sign yes. you didn't like that right. sign i gotta do <laughs> is, another sign that's what, right, right. It's fundamentally different. I get what they want is fundamentally different from what they just saw, which is, uh, you know, someone being healed from oppression. Right. And so that was good, the, but what else you got? 
That's right. And so, so in this case too, like the, whatever that sign is, Jesus saying, you know, you're not going to get it uh, except this, right? So then, then we have this. So, you know, the, the way the story goes is Jesus gives a couple examples of, um, of people, you know, who, who kind of function as signs for the kind of point that he's making. And Jonah, Jonah is one of them. And in context, it seems like the, the sign that, that he is talking about is, is a miracle that has this ironic effect that it, it causes, it's the kind of thing where that Jesus does that causes the establishment to reject it and outsiders to accept and be welcomed in by it. Because he, you know, he gives two examples in his response about a sign. He's like, I'll give you the sign of Jonah. Jonah went and preached to the Ninevites, which, you know, in, in context would have epitomized Israel's enemies at the time. But when Jonah preached to them, they repented and they they praised God. And the same thing where with the, the other analogy is there's the, the queen of the south um, who who comes to, to Jerusalem and is, praises God. And, uh, and you know, uh, Jesus is saying that that's another example of a, an outsider who, who can recognize when they are in the midst of something like true and good and real and powerful um, with the irony of this, the establishment, the in-group establishment that Jesus is, is contending against not being able to recognize it. What do, what do you all think about, you know, for how, how you think what the sign is? Well, I mean, in one particular passage, um, I think in one of the parallel passages, the sign was the three days and three nights too, yes. right? So just like Jonah right. was in the belly of the big fish, big fish, by the way, not yeah. whale. I, I'm a stickler with that. So, so not a big deal, but you, you can ask me later. Um, and not the Academy Award nominated movie. <laughs> that, that's right. Um, you're you're always good on those cultural references. I just I I, I don't I don't have any from, of that from twenty years ago. Yes, that, yeah. that's right. Um, so I I think there's it's it's interesting that even within the text there's these multiple interpretations of what that sign is and what you just mentioned is perfectly in line with the entire scope of Jesus's uh, mission and, and ministry. Um, and I think uh, I, I think that's what's interesting is that. For us, I think we want to see the sign is this and this only, but it feels like there's a lot more flexibility and a lot more um, capacity for the sign to be pointing to multiple things. And what I would say, I guess, is not so much like, what do I think the sign is, but to think of the sign maybe as evidence that God is at work and doing something. Like you point to that to say, oh, uh -huh. there it is. You say that God is at work. Um, show me how that is actually real you point to jonah and go that that is how this is evidence that it, it is working so i don't know if you th what do you guys think about the word evidence as a kind of parallel definition to the word sign that that might be my kind of add to the i think i would just hang out more in the story of jonah and say you know what jonah's like the most successful prophet of all time because even though he's and he hates his success. Right. Yeah. He hates his success because he knew God was going to be a good God. Uh -huh. right? He knew God was going to be compassionate and uh -huh. merciful towards those terrible Ninevites that he hates so much. Right. And so N Jonah gets there and he's like, repent. And everyone's like, got it. And right. everybody to the beasts, they all repent. And this makes Jonah mad. Right. But it is this crazy sign. So the sign, is, as we've talked about, is like people who like 
our outside belief, right? Specifically, Gentiles believe, like non-Jews are believing, and they hear this, and they're repenting with very little convincing, right? Like, Uh the sign of Jonah is show up to the Ninevites, tell them to repent, and the people are like, got it, done, would love to learn more about the God of Israel, right? Like, that's just, like, immediate, like, push through. And so then, of course, these other references that Jesus alludes to here are giving those hints to those stories, right? Queen Sheba and others. I like that. I think that that's part of what's happening and that people are noticing. And so if you didn't want the sign of the person being healed, are you going to see the sign of the fact that, you know, God has been saying through the prophets of long ago that he will draw all the nations unto God's self, right? This is from all the way back in Abraham. You could say, yeah, right. right? All the way back there. Um, So you have Abraham and then you have even when the Israelites are going into the land after the exodus from Egypt, Egyptians go with them. There's several. It would be fun actually to kind of pull through that thread of like, what are all the different times when people who are not defined within the body of the people of Israel, who, you know, the ancient Hebrews are finding an attraction to the God of the Hebrews, whether right. it's through Abraham and, and Mesopotamia or whether it's through Egyptians or Ruth, right? right. Like these beautiful stories that we yeah. have or Rahab or yeah. so, and Queen of Sheba then, of course, of Jonah, right. of others, where God is constantly concerned. And even there's an echo several times we see, you know, in our Hebrew scriptures, we'll say things like that the world will know that there yeah. is a God of Israel, right? Like, so those framings, I think, put Jesus sort of right in line with the prophets of old and pull back, pull that thing and say, you should take note, right? That's right. Particularly because in the Galilee, it is very international. Every group is there. All the languages are being spoken. The Via Della Rosa is passing right through, connecting from, you know, the way of the sea all the way up into the Roman world towards Damascus as well. But he's right on the crossroads of the world. And there's lots of people there who are listening in. And we see that in these gospel stories. Right. I think I might also propose another element of this in addition, which is in verse 29, when the crowds uh, were increasing, began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It asked for a sign, but no sign will be given it to it except the sign of Jonah. And I find uh, with the this particular theme, which might lead us right into the next section on Pharisees and lawyers, which is the very people that are supposed to celebrate and be the commissioners of God's salvation to the world, Jonah, is the very one that resents it, is the very one. I mean, we often think about, you know, God turning the world upside down, and we usually think of it in worldly terms or like secular terms. So like the, the secular world does it this way and God turns it upside down. There's also a theme within this section, as we get to the Pharisees and lawyers too, where Jesus is actually turning those of us who might happen to claim a religious identity or have a particular faith identity turning our world upside down as well right in the sense that jonah was supposed to be the one to celebrate i mean he's a prophet of god so he what it makes the most sense for him to want to celebrate the conversion the transformation the salvation of the ninevites and yet he's the one who is most ticked off about it most sulky uh uh, about he's the only one not happy in the story yeah right right Right. it's a dual sign 
right? Like, so uh-huh. the sign is look around. Gentiles are coming, drawing close and believing. And maybe the other sign is, and you're mad about it. <laughs> yeah, no, right? I, I agree. Like, and that, exactly. That's how I would frame it too. And that is consistent with, with right. everything we've talked about in Luke so far is again, like when we say upside down, there's two parts to it, right? Like the, there are those who were in and protecting being in, find themselves on the outside of this thing by their own choice, by their resistance to it. They find themselves on the outside while those on the outside are they're so happy to, right. to have some good news and healing yeah. and not entirely obviously right so we have a diverse crowd it's not like everybody in this in sure. a group is out and everybody in another group is in or everybody yeah. resists and only gentiles are going woohoo right like there were plenty of people in every single camp who were like yay or nay right That's we right. find all of that diversity there's no monolith here but i think right. what we what is uh moving to me is the the fact that all of us i think have a tendency to read ourselves into the the hero part of the story yeah right? we are never the ones who would oppress we always right. read ourselves as being the oppressed ones right and then being separate like if we're reading the exodus narrative we never read ourselves as the egyptians we always read ourselves as the ones right. being set free into the next part and so when we read these things as we look at that dual sign of of are you mad at somebody's being included? Are you mad about that? Or are you excited about it? And are you thrilled that people are being drawn close, right? Or are you upset right. that it's not happening the way you wanted or in the framework you expected? Right. Yeah. Okay. Oh. I agree. So, Pharisees and lawyers, which is this next section here. Now, for those of you who are familiar with other portions of other gospel accounts, this will sound somewhat familiar, where Jesus is railing against... So so let's just take well, that thing. So are you, oh. we're skipping lamp of the body, just so we know. It, would you like to... No, no, just making sure. Um, I think there's just one f- sort of interesting thing. Do we want to talk about the lamp of the body really quick? It's talking about generosity, right? It's not talking about a primary, like, like let's just shine our light and be, like, super sparkly and nice, that there is a phrase in Jesus's day that says, do you have a good eye? And if you had a good eye, it meant you were generous. And if you had a bad eye that was not full of light, right? It meant you were not generous. Comes from the idea to have a good eye is to actually see the suffering and the agony of your neighbor. To have an evil eye or a bad eye is to not see it. And so that is equated with the idea of having compassion and empathy and generosity, therefore, that's the follow-up, that's the follow-up action of having a feeling versus stinginess or dismissiveness of having an evil eye. Yeah, and if it's not, it could be speaking specifically about finances, right, and how generous financially you are. But there were a lot of people that Jesus was talking to who were probably pretty poor and didn't have a lot of resources, right? So maybe this is, again, a commentary on what we've just been talking about. Right. Right. Okay, if you felt convicted by the sign that I've now shown you is here, then show that by responding with generosity, with a with a good eye that lights a lamp and invites others to come. Yeah, I, I agree. And I would say, I, I, I think it is very consistent with what we've been talking about. It also, I mean, it, it speaks to this challenge that Jesus is confronting of people literally seeing good things and not being able to recognize it for right. what it is and off it, like coming up with a, a conflicting uh, account of it. And this this is, you know, it's an appeal to like, we, we have got to be able to see with mm-hmm. the, the right eyes to be able to understand, you know, what, what is good when it is in front of you. 
And then following that up with with action, right? Right. Which goes yeah. back again to the verse we were talking about last week, which we were just mentioning together is blessed are those who hear and hear the word of God and obey it, right? Yeah. So you it's something that you're going to listen to, but that's not enough. You right. listen and do. And so here, right, I've, you've listened to this conversation that we're having. Now, how do you action that out? And how do you do it? How do you extend yourself out to others? How do you live a generous life? So mm-hmm. I think that's just helpful to grab some of those symbols that are typically um, Sunday school symbols, like this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, where we just might interpret that as like being really blasty or loud or right. or glittery or or attention grabbing or whatever right when we can also set it inside its context um and obviously all the light symbolism that's there is there right as you uh-huh. think it through but there's also that uh, cultural context for generosity i think is important to point out so then we have verse 37 which you're just inter- introducing which is when jesus had finished speaking then a pharisee who was obviously in the crowd for this conversation invites him jesus to come and eat with him so he goes in and reclines at the table which is a typical way to eat in first century um and reclined at the table but the pharisee noticing that jesus didn't wash first before the meal was surprised and jesus so now was gonna... post-covid pre-covid by about two thousand years <laughs> <laughs> right right so then the lord says to them right he knows that they're talking about this issue of um ritual practice and and purity and how this happens when you sit down at a meal and he says now then you pharisees you clean the cup outside you clean the outside of the cup and the dish but inside you're full of greed and wickedness foolish people did not the one who made the outside make the inside also give what's inside to the dish to the poor and everything will be clean for you so back to that generosity conversation as well i think First of all, you want to start to frame how we have these conversations. When we start to read in here, we can either read Jesus sitting outside of that community, right? right. And and looking disparagingly at the entirety of like, oh, all Pharisees are bad to the point, of course, and we've talked about this at Spark on multiple occasions, that yeah. um, the word hypocrite, you know, where the word Pharisees become a euphemism for hypocrite because of these portions in Matthew and in Luke and other places. We just want to note for everybody at Spark who may need reminding or may not have heard it before that in terms of theology and what is held in in terms of the interpretation of of a lot of text in Jesus' day, if you had to put him in a camp, he would most align with Pharisee theologically more so than Sadducees or Herodians and and right. as, as so, did the Apostle Paul, who continued yes. to be a Pharisee and think of that that identity very right. positively for the rest right. of his life, even after he became yes. a follower of Jesus. I am a Pharisee of Pharisees, <laughs> right? Right. I am, right, I am right. a Hebrew, uh, right? So that's right. Would you? Would you Go, go ahead. ahead. So I was going to say that is that's I, I that's always an important caveat to call out because it leads to bizarre um, negative attitudes towards Pharisees and Jews in general. I would say though, I often forget though that perhaps lawyers too could use that caveat as that's well. Right. It's not not all <laughs> lawyers right. are are the way Jesus is characterizing them. There's two <laughs> groups that are, that are being attacked here, and right. they're not. That doesn't mean literally all of them, but okay. yeah, right. I and, mean, he's at the table of somebody who's invited him. Right. And is interested in that dialogue. We even know that there are other Pharisees that do follow Jesus. Right. Um, And that they're not sitting there questioning a lot of the theology that maybe the Sadducees might be questioning. Right. All the things that Jesus sort of holds that are typical uh, teachings of Pharisees, belief in angels and demons, belief in the inspiration of the whole of the Hebrew scriptures and not only Torah, belief in the resurrection and afterlife 
as all the Sunday school teachers can say, the Sadducees were sad, you see, because they did not believe in the resurrection and the afterlife. So Jesus much more in that camp. But what we also, I think all of us would call out as, as we've been talking about who's in and who's out, that as non-Jews reading this text 2,000 years later, it's easy to read Jesus as a Gentile. Right. Um, sure, whereas right. he's within the community having a conversation to his own community. And we often talk about how in our own family, there's things I can say about my family that he can't say about his family and vice versa, because we belong to those families. So you just, you know, I think it was like early marriage mistake, like year one or two, when one spouse or another will come out and go, you know what, you're just like your, you know, insert parental figure here. And then the other spouse gets really defensive and angry, right? Because you don't get to talk about my family that way. It's not a helpful dialogue piece. So instead, just to remember how we lead, how we hear, listen into this conversation, we're the outsiders listening in. I'd like, I'd like to kind of pull yeah. us to the modern situation and ask you guys. I've often thought a modern uh, analog to this is denominations like Baptists or Presbyterians or Reformed Church and Evangelical. It's just a, like there's all these different um, kind of religious camps that uh, are around. And someone within the Evangelical Church or someone within the Baptist Church says to their denomination, right. Right. listen, you guys are doing this when we should be actually continuing to do this. I, I'm kind of right. curious, does that analog work for you guys? Is that uh, to, because I feel yeah. like that would be a helpful string for for like people today when, when we're reading this to say, oh, you know what? We're going through something very similar and here's yeah. how Jesus dealt with it. I, w- I would agree completely. I, so I, th- I do think that that analogy works. I think it's always helpful to think through in this dialogue, mm-hmm. who is my in-group that, that, I, that I'm convicting? Because I think the tragedy of so much of like how, how we apply this is like, uh, or at least in, in lots of experiences I've had, is that people will, they will take this passage and be like, right, Jesus blasted his opponents. And then they will use right. this passage to just criticize every out-group right. yeah. that they do not like. As though they're Jesus. Like, well, yeah, and well, yeah, and like Jesus <laughs> spoke out against this these, this group or that group or that group, and then you spend all of your time right. uh, criticizing people who aren't even in your family, whereas that's what Jesus is doing. And and then there's an irony in that case too, when when there is uh, you know a, a voice of conviction rising up from within the community, you stifle it because you're like right. like what are you doing? You know, don't, like we're we're supposed to be fighting that that group out there. Right. We can't right. have division within the ranks. And then just just to add to that, to take it one step further, I, I would say I would encourage sparkers then to think about like the the spark in group as like what you know when we think about I know we group. all are the the heroes <laughs> in our in our story and it's it's you know it's easy to think of like you know we're we're like we're all great but we all need. Mm-hmm. To be convicted, uh, and and we need to be respectful of of those perspectives. I know, like for example, especially people in our circles who who like we all we want to believe that we're not racist and we're not sexist or whatever. It there, you know, we need to listen to voices in in our communities that can co- like call us out on that, and to not find ourselves in the same situation. As, as this establishment to say, well, that can't possibly me, be me that you're describing, like, like that kind of right, thing. Right, right. And I, as you were talking about your... Uh, oh, you wanted to... Allison this. says, all the lawyers listening in. That's right. Good job, Allison. <laughs> we're glad you're here. <laughs> and then I'll bring um, that comment. I, I was just going to say something along the lines of, you know, also in terms of your analog, 
of trying to think about how, how we might understand this today of sort of like an inter-family conversation. Um, there are varying places and, and, and interpretations within Jesus's day, even amongst the Pharisees, right? So there's not a specific, I mean, they're having their own debates all the time from within their community. And I, and then within other Jewish groups of that first temple time. I I think sometimes it might be like how I read this. I think, would I step into a Catholic community or not, or sit outside of one and then say how bad it is? I would not. Or a Protestant, if I were Catholic, look into a Protestant community and say how bad it is, right? Instead, we are letting the communities themselves have those conversations and be diverse. And of course, none of us would say all Catholics this or all Protestants this or all Christians this or all Americans this um, or in any of those things. So reminding ourselves of the diversity within those conversations, um, even as much as other people on the outside might look and say how similar a lot of the right. groups are that I just named from within. We're all very aware of the distinction. Yeah. When you go through church history, you're like, that's why there's 42 different types of Baptists, right? That's why, because right. people had disagreements within that denomination as well. So it's the great oxymoron, United Methodist. Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, Golden Heart um, says, and I think this is actually uh, a pretty important uh, conversation that I think there's a there's a lot of this sentiment. The, the question is, is it okay if I hate church denominations? And then the follow-up comment is, all they do is divide. And so I'm, uh, I'll, I'd like to take a first stab and see what you guys think. I um, first first of all, there's a tremendous empathy I think that we have uh, to you and to everybody who has had really unfortunate and hurtful and damaging and challenging situations and and experiences with churches it's really um it's it's especially hurtful because the very place that teaches jesus's love and acceptance and grace can oftentimes be the very place where you feel the most ostracization and and most uh hate sometimes and vitriol it can be very damaging but if i were to take the question literally as it's stated i think my encouragement would be did jesus hate the Pharisees. It, it, did Jesus have... Or the Sadducees. Or the Sadducees or, or the Herodians. Right. Did Jesus disdain or those people and the structures and the systems? And I, I realize this is a much bigger conversation um, to have, but I think, it's, I think it's a good question for us to consider because I feel as if we are kind of within a context today where if an institution, a denomination, some sort of religious organization... Um, has behaved in in very complicit ways and very compromising ways, it is very natural for us to rise up and to want to either hate, disdain, you know, and then call them out. And um, I'm not saying making a judgment on any of that stuff, but I want to ask the question, how did Jesus ultimately approach the Pharisees? And how did he do that? I see once again, a truthful and honest engagement with the very teachings and in many ways calling them to the better angels of their nature. Like you, you tithe your mint and your cumin. And he says this, he says, good for you, but you have neglected. So there's like an acknowledgement of the good thing that you have done with a, also an exhortation that you have missed something huge, which is justice and compassion and mercy. So th- th- I'll stop there and let you guys yeah, chime in, but I, there's my first I, thought. 
I like that. I would say too, uh, it's consistent with what you're saying is that, you know, I would say it's okay and right to hate tribalism. And I think that mm. that is mm. the idea of like what we're trying to correctly hate in this case. It's the idea of, of dividing or separating and that becoming the lens through which you view the world and a, a tool for othering. And in that sense, right, I think right. I think that is what we would all say is bad. And even in the question that, that we're discussing, that is what's bad. But not not all not all grouping. Uh, it has a tribalistic identity. In fact, you know, sometimes new groups form where their explicit goal is to be anti-tribalist and be ecumenical, <laughs> right? And so, yeah. you know, it, it got it. We we've got to try to like think through what is the thing that is wrong, right. like pinpoint, diagnose the thing that's wrong here, and stick the, uh, the criticism to that. Right. I think that's helpful because I think, you know, as you do go over church history. Um, there are times where you're like, oh, I'm glad they had that debate. And I'm right. glad that the people who disagreed went and found a way to practice their faith. The problem right. is doing, sometimes that's okay, right? Sometimes it's okay to have a group of followers of Jesus feel this conviction and a group of follower of Jesus feel this conviction. The problem comes when we say, because I believe this and right. you don't, you're not a Christian. Exactly. Or a real right. Jesus follower. And because, right, right so speaking as a female pastor uh, who kind of had to start her own church in order to become a senior pastor, uh, then there are sometimes reasons why people move forward in different directions based on on a lead of the Holy Spirit. And there are denominations that, you know, for 30, 40 years or more have been ordaining women, but then there are other denominations that still aren't, right? So there's, we all have to kind of work this out with fear and trembling, as Paul says. And I think uh, one of the things that we lean in a lot is the teaching of Jesus at Caesarea Philippi is recorded in Matthew that he gives all of us, the followers of Jesus, the the command to bind and loose, like whatever you forbid here can be forbidden. It's interesting, but forbidding and permitting, right? So we all have the authority from Jesus to figure out what we are going to forbid and what we're going to permit and try to work that out with fear and trembling. And there's no problem. There was no uniformity in Jesus's day amongst the people that were trying to sort out their faith. They permitted the arguments. I think that's the other thing that is helpful when we think about this discussion here. It was common to argue, right? It The first thing we see Abraham do is say, no, God, like, I'm going to argue with you about your destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, not the first thing, but amongst the first things. He has enough courage to tell God, no, don't destroy it for 50. Don't destroy it for 40. Like there's an argument base. Moses has a conversation with God and argues a bit. There's lots of places where disagreement is encouraged. The wrestling with Jacob, right? All of these things are encouraged. And so when we also are listening in, we're not just listening in as people who are non-Pharisees listening to a conversation. We're listening in as 21st century hearers who are not comfortable in America, North America, who aren't comfortable with this kind of tension, who only hear the conflict and we don't hear the wrestling maybe for the good and how those things work. Now we do have this little hint that it's problematic because in verse 45, as Jesus is like throwing down in this whole thing, one of the experts in the law who's also at the dinner is like kind of leaning over and he goes, I, I almost pictured his whisper like, uh, Rabbi, teacher, uh, when you say these things, you're 
we are also insulted. Like if yeah, you were it, thinking it implicates that you're right, yeah. right, right. If you were thinking that you're only categorizing those people over there, we are included in this thing. And right. he's like, and you, right? And so you. and then he just goes off and does another rough. set of woes to that. And group. in all right. of this section, I think often about how, first of all, I think it sounds rougher to me than it is. And when you find yourself, if you do find yourself in a culture or a community where people raise their voices more or where disagreement, you're maybe you're in a family where there wasn't any yelling growing up, but another family where everybody likes to yell around and debate at the table and that's okay and everyone loves each other afterwards. Um, we can have a sensitivity here that maybe feels like Jesus being super mean. Maybe part of it we need to read in, it's cultural to his time and it's appropriate, mm -hmm. right? The debate is good. And when we listen into the prophets of Jesus's, of of the Hebrew scriptures, right? Of the ancient Israelites and Hebrews, kind of like when we look, listen to Isaiah, when we listen to Ezekiel, when we listen to Jeremiah, they're saying this kind of stuff too, to the people of God of the day. How dare you do this? How dare you stare in front of the temple? Jeremiah says, and says the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, this isn't going to protect you. Like they're mad too. And so Jesus is doing something, not just a appropriate, probably in likelihood for his day, as we see recorded in other ancient rabbinic literature of this time. But he's also doing something in line of the prophets of old. As you read through your whole Old Testament, there are lots of other places where people are having these very, very important good debates. That being said, I also think of Philip Yancey's quote often, which is like, they didn't crucify Mr. Rogers. So there were wow. reasons why Jesus said things that made people mad, that it, he's not Mr. Rogers just carrying around lambs and then they just decided to take him out because he, lo he, he loved the lambs so much, right? Um, there's things that he's saying that are gonna make people mad. Um, and it's frustrating and angering and it is disrupting systems. And I think it's important for us to contend with these hard things that are going to be said. Which is why I'm not going to give them any sign except the sign of Jonah. Right. Right. All, right. all comes right. full circle. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and then we have the, sorry, can I say the conclusion then of verse 11, of chapter 11 is after this conversation, it says in Luke that when Jesus left there, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to, began to oppose him fiercely. So prior to this moment, it sounds like there was some more consensus or like, oh, that's interesting. Let's have this debate. And this rabbi says this, or this rabbi says this, and you can eat this or not eat this. Right. But here at this point, they're like, yeah, this guy's got to right. go. Right. They besiege him with questions and they're waiting to catch him in something he might say. Yeah. We are coming to the end of our time for this portion of the service. What I'd love to, there's one question here that I think is maybe we can get to very quickly. And then I'd love for the three of us to just sum it up and maybe give uh, our wonderful, beautiful congregation uh, a chunk or a snippet that we'd love for them to take home as a result of the, the time that we've had. Uh, Blindman374, um, welcome. I think this is the first time I've seen that username, so glad you're here. Does, quote, woe to you have a modern day <laughs> analogy that conveys the same meaning. Hmm. I'm not sure I, if I, I want to say what I want to answer to that. <laughs> uh, no, I, I say woe to you all the time, to everybody. So you, you you say woe to you? Like your children, yeah. are, when they yeah, cry, you're fine. like, whoa! Woe <laughs> to whoa. you! <laughs> yeah, it's a different woe. Right. Actually, to all sparkers, we are now going to use that phrase, woe to you. This is how we're going to greet one another. Woe to you. Whoa. So, yeah. Oh, this That's is Bob great. and Shelly. <laughs> okay. oh, great question. Oh, Thank nice. you so much. Um, yeah. 
so some things to to like you know seed the 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 thinking around it. One is it may help to think about how uh, earlier in the gospel, according to Luke, uh, Jesus can pair blessings like uh, you know blessed are those and but woe mm-hmm. to like yes. you know blessed are you who are poor but nice. woe to the rich. So to think of those as kind of like you know two different sides of the same thing. I know that that kind of makes it like punts the question to what what is blessed are the you know like what does that mean because we don't also use that language either in modern day and it's but really I, happy are the right right yeah, yeah right yeah and I, I think there's something to that like I think all of the different descriptions that people put forward I, I don't think they're far from from being right and I think there's a general thrust where there's this idea of better off or like blessed is like better off in a meaningful way or in the real way better off are those who um you know are, yeah. are humble whereas yeah. woe to you is like worse off are are those who you know do x y and z that that's mm. kind of how that's the functional way that i i think about it in my head i'm open to your all's thoughts on that too well i i would just i was just gonna know it's actually a phrase that comes up in the old testament right so mm. the woe to you is in numbers it's in isaiah it's in jeremiah it's in ezekiel so again just back to like jesus is using framing and language of his day and that his people and the people that he's talking to would hear those resonances. Like if Jesus is going to quote Jeremiah and Ezekiel, then there's going to be some serious resonances there of destruction, of exile, of powers that are going to come and take your your worship space away, right? There's a whole bunch of other stuff that's coming there as there is a prophetic call. So again, I would read Jesus back in to his own text that he's quoting and referencing to others and try to hear what other rev- resonances there might be there. And then you would, I would even go through like for a fuller study, if anyone's interested, like start searching words, not just the woe to you, but search like, is there another time when a cup and a dish are mentioned, right? Is there another kind when unmarked graves are mentioned? Is there another type of what other things might Jesus be hinting at um, for his very biblically literate community that we might miss because we just don't know our text as well as they did? Yeah. Um, just maybe a couple Nicole Dickens, woe to you equals now, wait a minute, hold up. Let me get this straight. <laughs> I, I think that's, that's fantastic. Um, Omer, you, um, as always, I learned so much from you. I really like your uh, explanation better than the one that I was, that I will now not say. <laughs> So we'll just. Oh, leave I it mean, that. for what it's worth, I, I would have enjoyed hearing that as well. <laughs> well, I I've always felt, and I th- I still think that the connotation is still there. There there is a sense of condemnation, shame on you, damn you. Like I, I want to be careful, obviously, with that language on on YouTube. But um, but there is that that connotation that I still see. But I really appreciate the behavioral outcome definition that you you put on this. It's not so much a shame upon the person, but the outcome that you are now going to reap upon yourself as a result of your behavior. So I, I just really appreciate that. Yeah, I would just also note that, you know, just in a quick look, as we look at the woes to you and the resonances, the prophet who's often employing that that sort of linguistic tool is speaking to a group of people in power, right? They're speaking to the people who are the religious leaders of that day. Like, for example, in Jeremiah, it's Jeremiah 16, and it gets explicit. But after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, says the Lord your God. You built yourself a platform and made a lofty place in every square. The head of every street built your lofty place, prostituted your beauty. It gets, it gets more. You played the 
with the Egyptians. I can't even read it. You guys have to read it. It's explicit. <laughs> so when you go through and you hear those resonances again, Jesus is referencing and calling back into that prophetic profession that speaks truth to the people, to God's people of the day who are in leadership and are making decisions that will bring the downfall of their people. And there are a whole bunch of reasons why that is the case, but we also, of course, know the story here as we read the Gospel of Luke that not long after this, in 70 CE, there will be the destruction of the temple, and Jesus will talk about this and and prophet, you know, look forward, have a prophetic voice to that. So this isn't the first time he's going to talk about the lack of obedience to God's word and the fact that you are doing the things on the outside but not tending to the actual true need on the inside. This sets Jesus right into like the prophets with Amos and Micah and everybody else who are trying to see the people of God live out their full mission and call into the world. Mm -hmm. Okay, we got to bring this to a close. Danielle, why not, based upon what you just said, can you sum up a nice like that's my thing and, i just said oh okay you, let Elmer go. okay so you said your thing for our <laughs> sparkers what is the takeaway for this time and for today yeah well for this last this last section especially i i would say that you know it's because we sparkers have often in the circles we run and have lots of power and resources relative to many of the people around us or the, or the world globally i would invite you to think about how, I know it's hard, like how I could be the person that Jesus is yeah. woeing in, in this context. There's the, there's this like just tragedy here where, where as we pointed out, the lawyers say, when you say these things, you insult also. It's like, it, you insult us also. Right. It's like, you right. like you you can't possibly be talking about not us me. too, right? No. Not me. You and clarify your I, terms. Right. I and that's the thing is I don't want to ever be in that that like same dangerous situation. There is there is a danger to this where like I am so invested in my own personal status quo that, that I am unknowingly threatened by truth and goodness when right. it comes to. And I think right. that's the consistent challenge that Jesus is grappling with in the entire chapter. Nice. I'd like to leave Sparkers with the idea. We believe that Jesus has come to redeem the world to change mm -hmm. the evil structures, to redeem evil, to establish God's kingdom, which is Edenic, as according to Genesis, and the reunification of heaven and earth, as in Revelation. And in these passages that we read, one of the ways in which Jesus does that is to redeem the religious people as the avenues and the vehicles through which the world can be redeemed. Right. And That's I good. guess I wanted to encourage our church, because I know a lot of our folks are challenged with religion. I mean, I, I appreciate Julia's uh, comments mm -hmm. and concerns about denominations and church and institutions and all that kind of stuff. And just an encouragement uh, that Jesus, just as much as Jesus died and loves the world, so Jesus also died and loved the church and all of the religious institutions that are commissioned to bring about God's kingdom here on earth. And it is our hope that we have that same compassion and hope for the church as the hope for the rest of the world. Yeah, I, I love that. Can I say one thank you? That's beautiful because we don't allow oftentimes for the possibility that there were people in the room that were convicted and did change and heard what Jesus was saying and started to live, started to reject the things that he was, you know, calling out and instead started to embrace the way of Jesus, right? Embrace a way that did not 
have hypocrisy as part of it, right? That embraced a concern for others, that did embrace the sign of Jonah. So I think that um, we need to hold out hope, right? If Jesus didn't care about them or didn't think that they could move at all, wouldn't he have just treated them like he treated Herod when he said, go tell that fox, right? And then he shows up and he's before Herod, he says nothing, he's just silent. Uh, Jesus is in dialogue and the dialogue is important because it means that he cares about the people he's talking with and has, there's hope for them too, right? There's nobody outside of Jesus's invitation. Yeah. Yeah. Bless God. Sparkers, we're going to move to communion. Thank you so much for being here and participating in the conversation. Uh, We'll let the slides lead us in communion. We hope that you have your elements. And as we partake in this um, tradition and this ritual, we are reminded once again of the redemptive value and the redemptive power of who Jesus is and the crucifixion and the resurrection that we celebrate and commemorate every single week when we take communion. So thank you guys. And uh, we'll let the slides lead us in communion. Thank you. And we'll see you in just a few moments. Yes. Thank you, Pastor Omer. See you in just a few moments for some amazing and exciting announcements at the end.